absolutely delighted you've all come to the Institute for Government this morning uh, for our event with Ambassador Adrian O'Neill. Uh, Adrian's been here before. Uh, he shows yet again his absolutely impeccable timing, uh, and that's based, I think, on his long understanding of Anglo-Irish, UK, Ireland relations. Those of you that have uh, long memories will remember that we had Ambassador O'Neill here on December the 5th last year. That was the day after the Prime Minister had been forced to leave her lunch with Jean-Claude Juncker on the Monday after that phone call from Arlene Foster and three days before the joint report emerged. So perhaps there is a formula that means that uh, in three days' time we are going to get a deal. The Irish ambassador at IFG uh, plus three days equals uh, some sort of agreement. Um, of course, at the moment, the negotiators are in the tunnel. And as you can see from the fact that Adrian is here with us now, he is not in the tunnel. So for those of you that want sort of a running test match special style commentary on the state of play of the negotiations, that is not what you're going to get today. So if you wanted that, then go and give your seat to somebody else. Um, but for everybody else, what we're hoping to do is just sort of take stock of where we've got to how we've got here, and where we might go next uh, on the multiple scenarios that are still in place. So, Adrian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you at Institute for Government to talk about Brexit. So I just thought we might just go back. I know I've just said you're not going to give us a commentary. You know, where do you think we are now from the sort of, you know, sitting there in the embassy in London, looking at the UK political scene, what's going on? David Liddington on the radio this morning saying he thinks things are getting close. What's your sort of reading of where we've, where we've got to on this? Well, thanks, Jill, and it's, it's very nice to be back in the Institute for Government. I mean, I don't, I don't share your assessment about the, um, about the quality of my uh, sense of timing. Uh, I, I think if a few weeks ago when I accepted this invitation, if I kind of thought that we'd be where we are now, maybe I might have kind of pushed it on a week or, <laughs> uh, or, or gone for last week. Um, but anyway, here we are. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the... Uh, I mean, as you say, I'm, I'm not in the tunnel. I, mm. I actually think that probably in reality you know, it's only a very, very small mm. number of people actually who precisely know where we are in relation to the negotiations at this very moment. Those who are in the negotiating teams on both sides... And I think the very small number of people at political level that they are reporting to uh, in, in, in Brussels uh, and in London. Um, but, uh, I mean, certainly uh, Michel Barnier met the uh, EU 27 uh, ministers yesterday uh, and kind of gave them a, a pretty general briefing in terms of where matters stood. Uh, and certainly uh, negotiations were in a very, very intensive phase. I think they had gone, a, they had gone on uh, on Tuesday morning till 2.45 a.m. is precisely the yeah. time I think that was mentioned. Um, and they were, they were resuming uh, engagement again uh, yesterday. And I think the Prime Minister, uh, um, I, I was in the Guildhall last night for the Lord's Mayor Banquet, and the Prime Minister... Also, uh, you know, indicated that the negotiations were uh, at a very, very intensive phase. Uh, the issues uh, that they were dealing with uh, were significant, and I think that they it it, it remained difficult. So, um, I think that's probably about all I can say at, at this stage. So, if we wind back a year, so to December last year, 
when that text was finally hammered out in the joint report, the text on the, on the backstop, it struck some commentators that this was a fudge uh, and basically everybody had just connived in a sort of form of words just to enable a sufficient progress that seemed to be made and actually there were problems down the line. Was that your reading of it at the time or did you think that that gave a very clear way forward for people to then turn into the legal text? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I didn't see it as a, as a, as a fudge. I mean, I, I thought it was in terms of the, of the objectives, in terms of a very clear political commitment to mm. the objectives that had to be achieved. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was very clear. Uh, the guarantee of there being uh, no hard border on the island of Ireland, of there being uh, no infrastructure related mm. to checks and controls. Um, it's, it's then set out a kind of a menu of... Uh, uh, of modalities uh, for uh, achieving that uh, kind of uh, you know options kind of one one two and three option mm. one being the that it would that the, the objective of no higher border would be achieved uh, through the future partnership mm. agreement mm. that the nature of that would be such that that, that would deliver the objective mm. uh, if that wasn't achieved that the UK government would then bring forward other proposals mm. uh, in terms of how that might be achieved. And if agreement uh, could not be reached on that, well, then there would be this backstop arrangement uh, to ensure that um, uh, Northern Ireland would be sufficiently aligned uh, with the rules of the single market and the customs union uh, to uh, ensure that you know, no hard border, to continue to facilitate North-South cooperation, to continue uh, the operation of the Isle Island economy. So... I think that was all. I think that was all very clear in terms of, of, of the political objectives yeah. to be achieved. But as you say, then mm. the next challenge was to translate that into into legal text. So, were you surprised then? You know, given the sort of legal text then emerged at the end of February, were you surprised given that was just a translation and presuming the Irish reading of the commitments in the joint report that the, not just the Prime Minister but basically the entire House of Commons reacted so allergically to the way in which the uh, EU 27 Task Force 50 had decided to translate that into text? Because you're the person who should be watching about and understanding how the UK is going to react to things, the fact that you know, where it's like, you know, constitutionally impossible for any Prime Minister ever to sign up to this. Were you taken aback by that? Or, uh, or had you sort of you know, warned Dublin that they were in very tricky territory with this language and translating it into the legal text? Well, I mean, I think it was, number one, uh, I mean, this was, this was work that was obviously being done by, by the task force, uh, by, by the commission task force. I think they were operating on the, on the basis of, 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 of a good faith um, uh, legal translation, um, uh, transposition of the, of, the, of the political text. Um, I think uh, they saw it as basically you know, doing no more, no more or less than what was required to achieve, uh, in legal terms, the objective of the, of the, of the, of the joint report, yeah. uh, uh, but one that was very specifically crafted. It was Northern Ireland-specific uh, in terms of the joint report. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I probably, I mean, I was, I mean, you know, I, I would say I was probably a, a little bit surprised by, 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 by the UK government reaction, I can understand 
while there were maybe there were perhaps some specific words in the text which people would have had a kind of a, an allergic uh, reaction to, um, and I think that's why the Commission Task Force have made it clear. Uh, made it clear that they were uh, willing to, uh, as Michelle Barnier says, to to de-dramatise uh, to de-dramatise uh, the text uh, in the light of the UK response uh, and reaction to go back and, and look again uh, at a term that is particularly in terms of some some of the presentational language that was in the text and uh, to de-dramatise it and to focus to focus uh, more clearly on you know what kind of very pragmatic and technical measures our controls would be required to deliver the objective in a Northern Ireland-specific context. So we can de-dramatise the checks, um, we can be very pragmatic, but if the NI, the Northern Ireland-only backstop kicks in, and the view of the Irish government obviously is it has to be potentially something that can kick in on a long-term basis if the first two options don't solve the problem, um, surely it still leaves this really difficult constitutional issue that part of the UK, uh, Northern Ireland, will be subject to the EU's regulatory regime, be subject to EU trade policy, customs requirements, have zero voice in any of those discussions, uh, maybe have to look to the Republic to represent its interests there because the UK government will be, or UK GB government will be a third country, not in any of those decision-making processes. So how, how do you see that actually being a long-term sustainable solution? Doesn't that raise rather more issues of a sort of constitutional nature than whether there are a few more checks on cows on ferries between uh, Stranraer and Larn? You know, well, I mean, I think, I, I, I suppose we're... Before, I suppose, we can make any kind of judgment on that, we, we, we obviously need to see um, the text of the a, a withdrawal agreement and what is being very specifically provided for there. Uh, I mean, there obviously will be some governance arrangements in terms of the, the, uh, the, the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland. There will obviously be some kind of oversight mechanisms that will be required between, uh, between the EU uh, and the United Kingdom. Uh, in terms of how the protocol will operate in practice. Um, and, I mean, I would imagine that uh, uh, those uh, oversight mechanisms mm. will uh, have make some provision for a, whether it's a UK or a Northern Ireland executive, mm. I don't know precisely how it will be structured, mm. uh, input into the governance uh, arrangements. And presumably that will provide some mm. form of consultative impact that will help to address that, that democratic uh, aspect that, that, that you speak about. But I think, you know, we can, mm. how you mm. put the question mm. is, of course, framing it on the basis of, you know, the glass is inevitably mm. uh, uh, half empty, the way you mm. phrase it, but you can also put it in the way to say that the glass is half full mm. in the sense that Northern Ireland, in, in many mm. ways, if, if in that kind of situation, mm. is, going to, is, going to end, is going to be in kind of having an opportunity to have the best of both worlds uh, in terms of being mm. part of the United Kingdom economy uh, and being able to mm. be the beneficiary uh, of all of that uh, and at the same time having a very privileged and uh, special relationship uh, with, the, with the European Union uh, and with the single market. And I would have thought that that would uh, confer as well certain advantages on Northern mm. Ireland uh, that would, in economic and trade terms, it would be quite helpful. Okay, uh, it's quite interesting. And actually, we were just discussing before we came in 
uh, quite how uh, quickly the Irish economy is growing, which is quite interesting. Um, 7.3% last year and 7.8% this year, which I think makes it a faster growing economy than places like China. So, uh, so the Irish economy is clearly not a bad economy to be associated with. But clearly, there are a lot of people around who, rather than see my proposition as a glass half empty, see it as a glass almost completely empty, uh, and that's something that we might have to sign up to in terms of this backstop um, ties us to the EU forever. You, the teacher suggested a couple of weeks ago, I think, that there could be a review mechanism. Clearly, that's where the discussions are now. Did he have anything in mind uh, for a review mechanism that might be acceptable to the UK, i.e. one that doesn't give the final decision to the European Court of Justice? Had he worked up what that might look like? Um, I... I, I... I don't. Um, I mean, I think the, that arose in the context of a conversation that he had with the Prime Minister when the Prime Minister called him last mm. week. And um, my understanding was that in the context of that of that of that conversation, the Taoiseach, you know, um, in 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 seeking to be helpful and seeking to try and find a uh, you know find a way forward, because you know, I mean, it's very much you know, uh, Ireland wants to. Wants to wants to see uh, a positive outcome to these negotiations. We obviously want to we obviously want to get a, a, a deal. We want to we want an orderly Brexit, um, and uh, and uh, in in, a, in 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 seeking to be helpful uh, to the Prime Minister, uh, he agreed that you know he, we would be willing to look uh, at re- review mechanisms that might help to give some assurance and confidence uh, uh, here in London. Um, but uh, so long as it was clearly understood that you know it. it at, Fundamentally, we couldn't be in a situation where a backstop arrangement, if that's if that's if that's where we were, could be could be ended unilaterally by by one party. That would that ultimately any any decision to end a backstop arrangement could only be by a mutual by mutual decision. Um, where where there was now where we were now transiting into future arrangements. Uh, uh, permanent future arrangements which delivered on the objective of no hard border on the island of Ireland. But I don't think he had any very specific yeah. things in mind and I think the idea that basically was was that that then was to be basically followed up in, in the context of discussions in Brussels. So one of the things that you must be quite worried about is that the Irish backstop as the big barrier not just to getting an agreement with the EU27 but as a big barrier to then... Uh, getting the agreement uh, endorsed by Parliament for the Prime Minister uh, raises the spectre of no deal. So I just wonder if you might come on to, you know, that clearly is something that the Irish government's been very keen to avoid. We all know that the UK government, uh, UK probably suffers worse from no deal. The next one up on the plate, who is really badly affected by no deal, is Ireland. Um, what do you expect the European Commission to ask you to do at the border? Uh, their preparedness notice says physical infrastructure will have to be put in place to allow all movements of live animals and animal products, da, 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 certain plants and plant products, to go through border inspection posts at seaports, at airports, or at land as required by EU rules. That's the EU's preparedness notice that they've issued about the consequences of the UK becoming a third country. So what do you expect to have to do if we end up in no deal? Do you expect to be asked by the EU to put in border inspection posts um, along those 260, 300 border crossings between the north and the south? 
Well, I suppose the first thing I'm saying is that, well, well, we, don't, we don't expect to be in an no-deal uh, territory, first of all. That's the, that's the first thing that I would say. We're um, all thinking the unthinkable now, and, though, and yeah. it's, uh, it's rather more thinkable unthinkable than perhaps it was a year ago. So. Yes, well, I mean, you know, we still, I mean, we're, we're, we're all hoping that maybe the next few days might bring, might, might bring some good news and, and that we might, you know, have a, a special European Council in November, but... You know, if 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 that is if that is entertainable, you know, it, there is still there is still we can we can still aim towards the December European Council and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's 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 never over until it's over. Um, but uh, uh, but what, I mean, the Taoiseach has 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 kind of has has made it has you know has made it clear that in terms of our own contingency and preparedness arrangements. Uh, we are we are we are well advanced on that. Uh, we are certainly working at preparedness arrangements in, in relation to, for example, on on an east-west basis in relation to the ports in terms of uh, east-west trade, and we're employing we're employing additional customs officers and uh, and and all of that. Uh, but uh, but we are we we're, we're not advancing uh, any preparations in, in respect of the land border. Uh, the Taoiseach has made it clear that that's something that basically he is. Uh, is 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 not is not is not willing uh, to, to contemplate, um, uh, but we will. Uh, if we did find ourselves in the scenario that you out- outlined, I mean, no doubt we would be in in there would be some very challenging uh, circumstances because we would, mm. um, uh, you know, Taoiseach, because of mm. all of the, the history of the island of Ireland and because of the the political situation and the sensitivity of the peace mm. process and the, you know, the fragility of the peace process in, 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 at the current moment, um, the Taoiseach would, not, uh, would, would be very, very reluctant to contemplate any such uh, eventuality. Um, on, on, the other, on the other hand, we do have our obligations to the European Union uh, in terms of the single market and the customs mm. union. So I, think I, would, I, would, I would expect that there would have to be some very serious conversations with, with Brussels about how we try and manage that very difficult situation. In those sort of circumstances, is there not a temptation if it really looks like the deal will sort of falter on this to say actually the UK government was, was right all along. The UK government always took the view that Ireland was a phase two issue that could only be solved by the future relationship and that actually the reason we got ourselves tangled up into the Northern Ireland specific backstop is we've tried to solve a phase two issue in phase one and actually if... There's the money on the table. There's the guarantees for citizens' rights. There's everything there except this pesky backstop that we need and there's proving difficulties. Isn't it going to be a temptation just to say, actually, let's just agree best endeavours that we'll solve this into phase two and kick the can down into the longer-term relationship negotiations? Do you see that as a possible way out if we don't emerge out of the tunnel with a decent deal on the backstop? Well, I think one of the reasons that why Ireland and indeed the EU27 insisted that this issue be, be addressed uh, up front as part of the withdrawal agreement was from the get-go, from the moment the referendum occurred, we understood the implications of that decision and of UK exit uh, in terms of the peace process in Northern Ireland, of how potentially destabilising that would be. Um, and, uh, and that, therefore, there needed to be the earliest possible assurance to people in Northern Ireland that we would not end up in a situation where the gains of the peace process and, uh, and indeed as parts of the Good Friday Agreement would be undermined mm. by, by Brexit. Um, and, you know, in the, in the two years which have elapsed since then, mm. 
I mean, the conditions, you know, Northern Ireland relationships have deteriorated. Uh, obviously, most obviously, politically uh, between between the parties, but also between communities uh, on the ground. I mean, that's been uh, acknowledged, including by including by uh, UK ministers. And so, I mean, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, underestimate the degree of worry and concern that there is actually about the you know, potential impact of Brexit. And that's why we uh, and the EU27 were insistent that the issue be dealt with early in the mm. negotiations. If we left it to the future relationship, mm. to, I mean, in whatever time mm. scale the future yeah. relationship is going to be, if we had left it to that phase and just allowed the mm. situation in Northern Ireland to drift uh, and for that, mm. those concerns and worries to deepen and, and so on, I think that would have been very irresponsible. What, uh, let's turn to the future relationship. We talked a lot. Let's assume we get uh, over our difficulties at the moment and get, an, get a withdrawal agreement and then we move into negotiating the long-term economic relationship. Uh, could we promise this Chequers plan hasn't got huge amounts of support? Um, I think it's fair to say here. But surely the sort of government that actually should be the biggest cheerleader for Chequers is the Irish government. It gives you almost everything you could possibly want in terms of friction-free trade and yet the ability to uh, attract loads of uh, English-speaking services businesses over to Dublin or Cork or wherever mm-hmm. you might. So what, do you, what will you be arguing for that the EU should be trying to do with the UK in that long-term economic partnership? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the I mean, the Taoiseach and and, and the Taoiseach Simon Coveney have made it have made it clear for quite some time that in terms of the future relationship negotiations, um, that Ireland will we will be uh, you know using our influence, whatever influence we have in those negotiations, to try and achieve the closest possible uh, uh, economic uh, you know trade and economic uh, and indeed broader partnership uh, with the UK um, because um, it's, you know, in terms of that very, very, uh, in terms of our bilateral trade and business relationship, uh, it will be easier to, I was going to be easier to sustain that in the context of a very close uh, um, uh, relationship between the EU and the UK. So you were right, I mean, when, when Chequers was published, uh, the Irish government welcomed the, the proposals as a very positive uh, a, a contribution uh, in terms of the future relationship. And uh, I think when we get to that future relationship phase, I mean, at the moment, obviously, you know, the issue of, you know, Northern Ireland and the backstop and so forth is, is, is as part of this withdrawal phase. I mean, that's such an existential interest for us that we have to adopt a very uh, robust approach uh, in the negotiations. But in terms of the future relationship, I think we will be certainly one uh, within the EU27 who will be uh, pressing for uh, the closest possible uh, relationship that, that, that we have. Now, I'll make one caveat to that and qualification to that, which is to say um, that, of course, uh, uh, that relationship you know, has to be achieved without fundamentally compromising or damaging the single market of the European Union, uh, and that will be something which all member states will insist upon. And uh, Ireland uh, also is very mindful of that because, I mean, you, you referred to our, 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 our economic growth rates and all of that. But um, one of the major reasons, of course, why uh, our economy has been doing so well uh, is precisely because uh, of 
uh, we are, have access to that single market, we are beneficiaries of that single market, uh, we export a huge amount of what we produce, uh, a lot of our FDI, uh, um, foreign direct investment in recent years, uh, has been achieved because you know, US companies come into yeah. Ireland because of the access we grant to the single market. So it's not in Ireland's interest yeah. either to be damaging the single market. I want to talk just briefly about one aspect of the future partnership. We talk a lot about the future economic partnership, clearly there, subject to the single market rules, etc., and the UK quite well aligned. It's another area where actually the two countries have benefited enormously from the working within the EU umbrella, which is on security cooperation, internal security cooperation. We've heard, and I think there's quite a lot of evidence being given by things like the police service of Northern Ireland, that they're really worried about the loss of things like the European arrest warrant, lack of sort of um, information sharing through the various uh, various systems. We touched on that in a report that we did uh, we did earlier this year. Just wondered, people are very worried that if there isn't a sort of full-blown security partnership, more or less replicates the arrangements we have now that will return to sort of bad old days of sort of politicised extradition and that sort of essential seamless cooperation will end. So how much is Ireland going to be able to argue for a pragmatic view of that? Because there's some people that say actually that can't happen because as a third country, the UK, UK won't meet EU data standards and stuff like that, you know, and the European arrest warrant won't work because you're not an EU member state, you can't have that, or whatever. Where do you see the security partnership going? Because I think it's very critical for both sides mm. in the security situation mm. in the island of Ireland. Yeah, well, I mean, those issues obviously are going to, are going to be part of the, of, the, of the future relationship discussions uh, and negotiations. But you're right. Uh, I mean, we do, have a, we do have a lot of skin in the game, so to speak, in relation to the outcome of those aspects. And we, I mean, the government will be listening very, very carefully uh, to what our own police service, the Garda Síochána, and indeed the police service of Northern Ireland uh, say to us uh, about, about these matters. Uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm long enough uh, in, the, in the Irish diplomatic service to remember the days before the European arrest warrant uh, and the bilateral extradition procedures between Ireland and Britain uh, during the Troubles and uh, all of the, uh, the difficulties mm. they caused and the controversies they caused uh, when you had a, a bilateral extradition warrant for some, you know, in, being found to be flawed by a court and thrown out and then the, the brouhaha that would uh, emerge in Parliament and the media and so forth and things like that. Uh, and the issue become, inevitably becoming mm. politicised and so on. And not, not, none of us want to go back to that. I mean, the European arrest warrant has been a really effective mm. mechanism uh, in terms of cross-border uh, uh, security and justice cooperation. And, um, and, and we certainly don't want to go back to, 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 the, to a kind of a, a bilateral process which, uh, which, doesn't, uh, which doesn't serve us well. So I think, I mean, we, we certainly will be, will be hoping that we can find some way through there that will, in some fashion, however it's done, replicate the kind of the outcomes that we've yeah. been able to enjoy in recent years. Okay, I'm going to go to questions. I've got quite a lot more questions for Ambassador O'Neill, but I imagine you do too. Uh, if anyone is in the overspill room and wants to ask a question, they have to, I fear, walk into this room and wave their hand. So let's, uh, let's take questions. We're going to take them in, uh, in groups. So anyone want to ask a question? Okay, so Adela, if you just go to the row behind you, let's be very efficient. And let's do three in a row. And can you tell us who you are? Yes, I, I... 
I'll stand up, actually. John, John Pete from The Economist. Um, I wonder, Ambassador, if you have any worries about the sustainability of the common travel area in the long run. We don't quite know what the UK's immigration policy will be, but one possibility favoured by many people in the government is to treat EU citizens the same as non-EU citizens. Does that, if that <coughs> happened, would, it be, would that raise questions about the CTA? Okay. Next. Um, uh, Peter Kellner, uh, formerly of, of YouGov, Occasionally, we get talk from Brexit here saying it doesn't matter how bad the deal is, let's just get to March the 29th, because if we don't like it, we can come into government and we can tear it up. Does this talk concern you, and is it possible to make the withdrawal agreement proof against being torn up by a subsequent British government? Okay, yes. Hi, uh, Aaron Nelson from Bertram Dyson Bell. We're a law firm here in Westminster. Um, I'd just like a, an assessment from the Ambassador about the likelihood of uh, dissident Irish Republican violence in the event of the imposition of um, UK infrastructure on the, on the border in the event of either no deal or a deal that involved or required that. Well, that's wide-ranging questions. Okay. Well Let's start with John's question about the, about the common travel. That's been the sort of relatively easy thing to get over the line, mm. actually, isn't it? The common travel area obviously predated membership, etc., uh, etc., et or whatever. Are you looking at what the UK might do on migration policy and thinking, can we really sustain this long term? Or are you relatively sanguine that we're okay on the CTA? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the, the devil is always in the detail. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not complacent about... Um, uh, about 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 the, about the CTA, but but I am relatively sanguine that that it, that's in a that's in a in, in a good space. I mean, the UK has indicated that uh, has given a formal indication as well that that even in the, in an ODL scenario, it's committed to uh, maintaining uh, uh, the CTA, and there is a there is a, there is a lot of work going on bilaterally now between. Uh, between uh, between Dublin uh, and London, looking at uh, all aspects of the CTA, because it's not just about travel; it's also mm. it's also about the, the kind of mm. the related rights uh, of access to employment uh, and to services, uh, and there's voting rights uh, and all of that. And uh, so, um, uh, so kind of beneath that kind of just right of kind of free right of travel, kind of ca- cascades down from that is quite a complex mm. kind of nexus. Uh, of rights uh, and so and there's a lot of work going on between the relevant departments in in, in, in London and Dublin saying okay well how do we how do we you know basically kind of now kind of codify that and ensure that uh, we we lock down the administrative detail mm. and that we uh, uh, then uh, share the information mm. uh, and provide uh, the information and of course it's for it's not just for Irish citizens in, in, in Britain it's also for UK mm. citizens uh, in Ireland the same uh, the same the same reciprocal rights um, I mean in terms of the one of the in when in the joint report, the one that asked me the joint report that there was a commitment in the joint report back in December that the UK specifically acknowledged that the CTA, the operation of the CTA, would, it would have to operate without in any way prejudicing the rights of uh, EU citizens uh, from the EU 26, mm-hmm. uh, their right in respect uh, of uh, free movement to Ireland. 
uh, and that was in that was in the joint report. So I think what you were maybe thinking of, John, is what what if we what if there is a visa uh, uh, requirement imposed on on, on on then EU citizens coming in coming into Britain? How, how would that operate in terms of the land border? Uh, and so would that would it be a requirement on Ireland to therefore kind of police our land border in terms of? And uh, I think the answer is, is, I think on the joint report, uh, that, would not, that would not arise. But obviously, we, we, we are watching with interest the, uh, the UK's wider plans in terms of immigration. And uh, I know the white paper will, will arrive one of these days. And, uh, uh, and um, so we're watching all of that, because there are, there are some potential read-across implications. I think the white paper is always about two or three months away and has yeah, been for yeah. really quite a long time. Um, so let's go to Peter's question. We've got a lot of people, you know, this is thought to be one of the sort of Prime Minister's almost arguments for getting to March 29th, that you can get some people there that they're not very committed. And we've seen a sort of series of, um, of things. I mean, straight after the joint report last year, David Davis decided to go on the Mars show and say, oh, we've signed up to this, but that's not, very le- that's not legally binding. We can always, you know, whatever, so you don't have to take it too seriously. Um, obviously, by the 29th of March... We have uh, a legally binding treaty for the withdrawal agreement, but the political declaration on the future framework is uh, just so many words. Um, sounds like it's going to be a lot and lot of words if it's really the 500 pages the BBC is claiming it's going to be. Um, how worried are you that basically the UK leaves and then just says we're off and we're not going to recognise any of those commitments that we made uh, before? Yeah, well, um, I, 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 I wouldn't say we're 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 we're, we're terribly worried about 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 that. Um, uh, you might accuse us of being naive, but um, I mean, we still we still we still believe we still think that uh, international agreements mean some things, and the United Kingdom is a very serious country uh, which takes its international responsibilities very seriously. Um, I think there would be there would be a withdrawal agreement there that would be a legal a legal a legal treaty between between the European Union and the and the United Kingdom. Uh, you're right. What we would have in re, in respect of the future relationship is a political declaration. Um, the detail of the future relationship uh, would have to be would have to be negotiated. Uh, those negotiations would only begin in earnest after 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 March. Um, uh, uh, so you can imagine that there, perhaps there would be that that there clearly would be some scope for for flexibility or development or evolution between between the uh, between the political declaration and the final content of the future uh, of the of the of the of the of the future relationship deal. But in respect of the withdrawal agreement, I mean, I would expect that, that would be uh, pretty uh, very solid. I would expect that the any UK government uh, would 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 meet its commitments. And um, I mean, I think apart from anything else, uh, if the UK government, on the one hand, was um, uh, was around around the world seeking to negotiate trade deals with third countries, and was adopting a very 
nonchalant attitude to respecting its commitments in, a, in another recently concluded international agreement. Mm. I don't imagine that would leave you in a very good space in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of uh, attracting uh, negotiating partners. Um, so, I, so, I mean, you know, in frankly, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would be pretty confident that the withdrawal agreement would, 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 would hold in all circumstances. So where it obviously gets difficult, because the bit of the withdrawal agreement links into the future relationship is through the famous Northern Ireland, uh, non-Northern Ireland backstop. If a future UK government said, well, you know, maybe a different, different political hue, um, that can mean anything here these days, but we have a government that says, actually, we signed up to this sort of deal on Northern Ireland... We think we've perfectly reason- got perfectly reasonable arrangements. Maybe the review mechanism, maybe whatever, doesn't quite agree, but we think we've got perfectly reasonable mechanisms. And Northern Ireland's going to actually stay with us, and we're going to subject it to UK customs, UK tariffs, uh, UK regulatory rules. How actually does that get enforced in Northern Ireland? I mean, you can't exactly send in a task force to sort of you know, say, no, those chlorinated chickens have to be seized at... Uh, uh, the Northern Irish ports. What's no? How does that work? Well, <coughs> let's let's wait till we see the draft withdrawal agreement. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a, um, I, I mean, there's. We know that an awful lot of work has been done by the task force in terms yeah. of the de-dramatising uh, of the backstop arrangement and so on. We know <coughs> that that we know that that is uh, is 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 now a very technical document. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's an awful lot of detail in it, including in relation to the in relation to the protocol in Ireland and Northern okay. Ireland. So, I mean, um, I mean, I, I, I think we should suspend judgment yeah. until we actually see it. And finally, the question there about yeah, from yeah, from Aaron. Yeah, I mean, on, well, I mean, I, well, I think I take seriously the assessment of of the chief constable of the police service of Northern Ireland and of the of the Garda Siakana uh, and the. Uh, and, and indeed, the, the UK government's own assessment that the, the threat uh, from dissident Republicans remains severe. Now, happily, in recent years, the police cooperation between the PSNI and the Garda Siakana has been such um, that uh, dissident Republicans have had very little space in which to operate. Um, and while they still have... Uh, a, a murderous intent, and if there were opportunities, if they had opportunities uh, to kill PSNI officers, they would avail of those opportunities. Um, uh, so they still have that intent, but their capability has been much reduced, uh, and they don't have any significant traction within the broader community, and they don't really have a cause. But I think the, the real fear would be that. Uh, border installations uh, uh, emerging in any fashion uh, gives them a cause, um, and uh, you know, uh, then you know, we'll, you could find ourselves in a kind of a, a descending spiral uh, that any border installations, cameras or whatever they are, are vandalised. There's a demand then that they be protected. Uh, and then we get kind of more elaborate kind of infrastructure around them. They get attacked. The next requirement is that, therefore, you have some kind of manned um, uh, defence around them, and then you have, you know, PSNI officers being put into uh, vulnerable situations and so forth. By hyping up the border as this massive issue, you've always got into a position where no self-respecting dissident couldn't 
blow up a sort of little virtually invisible roadside camp because it's become such a touchstone that it's almost become a self-predicting uh, you know, prophecy that they'll get blown up because we've all been saying this is such a major issue whereas otherwise just a bit of low-level technology, you know, would anyone really have noticed? Well, again, I mean, I just, I, I, I wouldn't want to second-guess I wouldn't want to second-guess the Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland on this. And, I mean, he's been very clear on this, uh, including in terms of giving evidence in, in Parliament here and so forth. So, and, uh, you know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, PSNI offices, there are still parts of, of Northern Ireland uh, uh, down around the border where it are, are still kind of yeah. no-go areas yeah. for PSNI officers. Let's have some more questions. So let's uh, go here. Adela, Elliot, if you go to the back. There? Thanks. Yes. Uh, Rob Douglas. Um, it strikes me that one of the problems in the negotiations between the UK and the EU is the different legal systems, that the EU sees this as a very legal process, and that comes out of the Roman law system, whereas the UK, with its common law, sees it as a pragmatic negotiation. Now, once the Britain has left, the only country in the EU, I think this is right, with a common law system will be Ireland. Do you think that will afford Ireland a chance to be a bridge between an, uh, a UK outside the EU and the EU? Because I think there's such misunderstanding between the two systems and how they work, and, and you have a foot in each camp. Okay. Yeah, and the back? Uh, Hans Van Leeuwen from the Australian Financial Review newspaper. Um, I went to a press conference yesterday um, where the leaders of the non-DUP parties in Northern Ireland uh, sort of... I paraphrase, but they said, you know, a can of worms has been opened and at some point they're now going to have to put the question to the people of Northern Ireland as to what, you know, what they want their future to be. Do they want to rejoin the, rejoin the Republic or remain with the UK? Um, what would be the Irish government's sort of view if, if Northern Ireland, uh, in its wisdom, decided to uh, have a referendum? Because I believe it needs uh, some kind of sanction from both governments. Okay, yes. Uh, Donald McCarthy, RSPB. Um, what sort of guarantees is the Irish government uh, looking for on this issue of uh, the level playing field for social and environmental standards as part of the um, uh, all-UK uh, customs backstop? Uh, this, is, this is obviously something that, that seems to be a bit of a sticking point in, in the current negotiations, but it would be interesting to hear your perspective from, from outside the tunnel. Okay, that's, uh, that's a pretty wide-ranging set of questions. Uh, so, Rob's point about, uh, about different legal systems, are you... Are you a bridge, or are you actually worried that the, without the UK there, the direction the EU takes will actually be one that may be a bit more inimical to the Irish approach than one where the UK has been relatively influential, if we dare say that? But anyway. Yeah, well, I think there's... There, I mean, I think that is certainly... I mean, I don't uh, actually. I mean, whether whether that's whether that's threat or opportunity, I, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. To be honest, I mean, I uh, I know there's certainly a lot of interest within the within the legal professions in Ireland and and indeed within our judiciary um, in uh, in in uh, in engaging uh, uh, more with their with our counterparts uh, over here to kind of discuss and and. Uh, 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 and, and analyse uh, all of uh, all of this, and uh, we're certainly seeing, I think, over the last couple of years as well, uh, a lot of 
uh, Irish, law for, uh, Irish law, for, law firms uh, operate opening offices uh, in London, uh, and conversely, uh, UK law firms here uh, opening uh, offices uh, in Dublin. Um, so um, I, I know that this is something which the, uh, the legal specialists are, uh, are increasingly in, engaged uh, in discussing and analysing uh, where, quite where the centre of gravity is in it, I'm just, I, I, don't, I don't really have a, have a sense uh, uh, as yet. I think the way you phrased the question there, Jill, though kind of puts a more broad, more, I think does illustrate a broader point about the UK leaving the European Union does have lots of implications about the future yeah. direction of the Union uh, about, uh, in terms of its policies and so forth. And Ireland and the UK have been very, very like-minded in a lot of major you know, internal policies within yeah. the European Union in recent years. Probably the only real exception mm. is the common agricultural mm. policy where we have divergent <laughs> approaches. But, for example, in relation to the single market, yeah. uh, there has been, uh, mm. we have worked very, very closely together in terms of wanting to you know, broaden and deepen the operation of the single market. And those dynamics now internally will change within the European Union, and that will be a challenge for Ireland, and it will be a challenge for other like-minded EU member states. So we're going to have to be a good deal, maybe more agile uh, and so on, uh, in terms of kind of creating new alliances and so forth uh, within the EU. Um, prospects for border poll? Prospects for border poll, right. Hans' question, well. Um, what I say in that is that, is that I think one of the difficulties in terms of of Brexit in Northern Ireland has been is that it has become the, the question of how we manage uh, Brexit uh, has become kind of conflated uh, with the kind of the, the green orange uh, divide, um, which has made it very difficult to manage because the, the political temperatures have uh, have have escalated. But the Irish government position in that is that is that the the question of sovereignty in Northern Ireland is solely determined by the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, by the consent provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, which basically required that any change in sovereignty would, would have to be by a majority of the people uh, living in Northern Ireland. Uh, how that would be tested would be by a border poll, uh, and a border poll would only arise if the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland judged that it was likely that such a border poll would result in a majority for change. Uh, so the test really is the Secretary of State of the day must, must be presented with prima facie mm. kind of evidence which suggests that a border mm. poll would be likely to result in a change. Um, and uh, I think there is a, the view of the Irish government is that such a border poll now at this point would be unlikely to result in such a change and therefore to hold one uh, in current circumstances when we're trying to grapple with Brexit, grapple with the absence of devolved institutions in Northern Ireland, would probably be divisive and unhelpful um, uh, 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 at the moment. There was quite an interesting piece in the Irish Times a couple of weeks ago by Fintan O'Toole called Here's How Post-Brexit Ireland Could Turn Out, which presents a rather grim vision of an unravelling... UK and a Northern Ireland voted to join the Republic and the Republic not really wanting it. I wonder whether that had got much sort of interest and traction uh, in Irish circles, doing rounds on Twitter and people saying this is quite an interesting, slightly apocalyptic vision of where things might be, uh, might be going. Well, I mean, I think Brexit, 
I think Brexit represents has put has put a, has put some pressure on the Good Friday Agreement, and has put some pressure on the devolved mm. settlement yeah. more generally across the UK. Um, and um, I mean, this whole debate about you know the the, rep- the repatriation of powers from from Brussels that will come back to the devolved mm. administrations and. You know how they're handled, and do they go to London or do they go back to Edinburgh and Cardiff, and then what kind of frameworks have to be put in place? All of these things, you know, are kind of have implications for for the etc. And I mean, I've no doubt that that if we if we ended up with in in a hard Brexit and a hard border, um, that would obviously have implications, um, maybe not immediately, but I think down the line for. Northern Ireland, and for the degree to which the views and opinions of people in Northern Ireland about a United Ireland would change. It could potentially shift the dial. Because, of course, in those circumstances, if you are minded to consider a United Ireland, there now is two reasons why you might find that positively attractive. Number one, because if you're a nationalist, um, uh, a United Ireland may well, be, may well appeal to you as, as your ultimate aspiration. And secondly, it gets you back into the European Union. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, in terms of long term, I think, uh, in the long term, particularly if we ended up with a, with a hard Brexit or a hard border, um, <coughs> there is the, it could potentially shift the dial on that, on the, on that issue in terms of where, where a majority of the people of Northern Ireland uh, would find themselves. So Donald's point here about the sort of, you know, uh, if you like, temporary customs union plus, 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 that having thought, you know, Theresa May's temporary customs arrangement she floated in the summer was really just about customs, maybe with VAT as well. (coughs) But we're told that the EU is keen to add level playing field provisions. We always know Northern Ireland has been a bit of an Achilles heel, say, on environmental enforcement, uh, (coughs) to add... um, Fisheries into the deal as well that you don't get you know uh, don't get to take back control of our fishing water. We know it's quite a difficult issue for the government uh, you know, with the temporary customs. What's the sort of Irish government's view to all these sort of added things being put into the whatever? I think the Tuchik said that you did need loads of level playing field provisions and proper enforcement of them if you were going to have this sort of arrangement. Well, I suppose the reason that they're they're added, um, and because they have kind of just now kind of come into come into into focus <coughs> now, is because they're a consequence of the UK yeah. government's success mm. in in getting getting in, in, in effectively shifting the EU twenty seven to consider a UK wide customs agreement as part of the backstop. Um, <coughs> that had long been a UK yeah. uh, objective. The Commission Task Force view until reasonably recently was that wouldn't be possible, that a UK-wide customs arrangement as part of the backstop wouldn't be possible to negotiate for a number of reasons, um, uh, including the fact that it would require all these level playing field issues to be addressed. Um, If we were just operating on a Northern Ireland-specific backstop arrangement, then the level playing field issues could be left for negotiation as part of the future relationship negotiations. But because now, in order to get a deal, uh, we need to have some kind of UK-wide customs uh, so arrangement. So why does level playing field matter for customs? I mean, after all, you know, if you look at CETA, 
CETA allows pretty much free trade without tariffs on you know, most goods between whatever. You know, it's not single market access. Um, so why suddenly, if the UK wants effectively a sort of you know, free trade, you know, uh, put in place the common external tariff, you know, customs union, why does that have to come with all the baggage of level playing field provisions? What's the logic there? Well, it's because if if the UK if the UK was effectively in a customs in a customs mm. union, um, uh, but uh, didn't have to abide uh, by all these uh, a level playing field environment, it would confer very significant competitive advantage on the UK, which um, uh, and the UK is such a major, a major, a major economy. You're talking about a major economy in, in, in the heart of Europe, and the the EU27, the view of the EU27 was this was this was always going to have to be part of the negotiation. So one of the things that uh, we're told what they want to put in a level playing field agreement is tax. Uh, the UK government's had to devolve corporation tax to Northern Ireland because of the Republic's 12% corporation tax rate. So does a level playing field cut both ways, that if we're forced to sign up to these level playing field provisions, Ireland will have to raise its corporation tax rate? Because that's caused real difficulties for the North. Well, it's interesting that you should mention that. Uh, (laughs) Because it's... The, yeah, I mean, the UK government has 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 uh, has uh, accepted in principle uh, the request from the Northern Ireland Executive a number of years ago that it be allowed to set its own uh, diff- differential corporate tax rate, um, and it's always it's kind of puzzled me to some extent that those those people who've been saying that when we were talking about Northern Ireland specific backstop that we couldn't possibly have it that you know differ we couldn't have anything that was differential uh, uh, from the rest of the UK. Uh, that uh, differential customs arrangements were uh, verboten and uh, an appalling vista, but somehow differential corporate tax rate, well, that was perfectly fine, um, uh, uh, and so on. But that it was, I, I, I always wondered about the, uh, the, the consistency of that. But I, I suppose my, the answer to the question is, is, that, is that, you know, within, certainly within, within the European Union, uh, the question of, of tax rates were, was always a sovereign and national competence and, and, and a, ma- a, matter, a matter for the sovereign decision of national governments. And, uh, uh, and we have, uh, and uh, so that's what we have uh, availed of and that's what we think has, uh, has, has served us well. I think that's and, something the UK and Ireland's always agreed on, actually. Yeah, spent- absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, we would welcome the fact, yeah. I mean, if, you know, hopefully yeah. we will, if we can, if we can get yeah. back onto some kind of stable trajectory in relation to Brexit mm. and there's a real opportunity to get the institutions back in mm. Northern Ireland operating up again mm. and they get their and they and they get their uh, mm. their differential tax rate and uh, and uh, etc mm. we would welcome and support that okay let's have last questions uh, we've got loads flocking up so Elliot if you could go to the back Adela down here so behind you uh, yeah. all the talk of level playing fields has um, can you tell us who you are Chris Brannigan I'm former political advisor um, the talk of level playing fields has made me wonder what prospects there are for the future of the um, Irish Rugby Football Union team. Um, I wonder whether or not they should provide a model for what should be a pragmatic basis for the bilateral relationship between the UK and Ireland okay, after, after we left the European Union. Interesting, slightly left field question, but yes, thank um, you. Rosalie, Rosalie. Rosalie Hughes. 
there are growing calls in Britain for another referendum with Remain as one of the options on the paper. I wonder if you could offer some ad- helpful advice from the Irish experience on how to hold a referendum where you get the right answer. <laughs> Okay, of course, the IFG has no view on what the right answer in another referendum would be if there were one. And down, down here. <coughs> Let's just take the remaining two and then we'll get Adrian to answer those. And uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, you've mentioned the corporate tax rate it being uh, a sovereign matter, but Ireland has received a fantastic amount of support from uh, EU26. It tends to operate on a quid pro quo basis. <laughs> Uh, are you concerned about the fact that without the UK as a powerful ally for maintaining um, tax rates within the, as, a, as a sovereign issue that, that it will be difficult for Ireland to reject again uh, 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 raising, raising the corporate tax rate? Okay, let's just take the last two questions. So there, if you could hand the mic back and if Elliot could get the mic there. Yes. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament. I've had the comment from Irish businessmen quite often that um, put aside the Northern Ireland issue, Ireland has a a total history, unlike any other EU country, of free trade, obviously, with the UK, and we will be affected and seriously affected. I was reading this morning an article in the Times which says... British business is very critical, but doesn't speak out. I'm wondering what, British, what, what points business is putting to you. I would have thought they're concerned. Okay, and final question, yes. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. I would like to have a very uh, beginner's questions. Uh, so constructive ambi- ambiguity and then uh, self-determination by Northern Ireland to someday. So... Uh, Good export from the UK, Great Britain to Northern Ireland is very small. And also, uh, export of this to uh, Ireland is very limited. Why uh, this very small economical issue is sticking point? Yeah. And my guess is it's a, a political bullying on the UK. Or you want the UK to remain or to have a second referendum. And uh, politically, uh, Northern Ireland issue must be fudgy and ambiguity. And why you would like to take a very clear uh, decision at this time? Okay, I think it goes into the sort of phasing thing. So let's take all of those. Um, Prospects for the Ireland... uh Rugby team. Okay. They just go right. on, don't they? Yeah. Well, um, yes. I mean, the the, uh, the, the Chris's point about the, the Irish rugby team. They're they're an All Ireland team. Um, uh, they have been for many years. Um, uh, the the ladies, uh, the Irish Irish ladies hockey team that got to mm. the uh, surprised us all and got to the final of the World Cup finals here in London in July. Mm. Are also an All Ireland uh, team as well. And uh, indeed, many sports are compri- on, a, on an all island basis, and I think that is to be uh, welcomed uh, and, and encouraged. And even during the bad days of the Troubles, uh, the all island, the, the, the hockey, the rugby team uh, operated on an all island basis and was a kind of a network for, for, for contacts and dialogue across the island when, 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 when there weren't 
too many others around. Um, but I think, I think Chris, I, what I say is in terms of pragmatic, one thing I would say is that I suppose inevitably the last couple of years of Brexit being, being dominating the dialogue and, 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 and the discussion between, between, between the two governments um, has meant to a certain kind of, you know, a, a bit of stress and strain uh, in the relationship. Um, but I think, I think the fundamentals of that relationship are very strong. I think there's a determination both in London and Dublin to ensure that whatever happens in Brexit, that the relationship doesn't suffer in terms of collateral damage. There's a good bit of thinking going on already about after the UK leaves mm. the European Union, how do, and given that ministers will no longer be mm. meeting in Brussels on mm. a daily basis and all of that, how do we make mm. sure that the bilateral mm. relationship remains as close and as positive mm. as it's been? And I think you will see proposals being brought forward in, in, you know, pretty soon in terms of how we, of how we try, and, of how we try and, and, and do that. Um, do, you, do you expect the EU to exact a price in terms of they don't like your corporation tax rate either? I think it's Paul's question. You know, is there a, are they going to be quid pro quos for their... Uh, so far, unbending support for uh, for Ireland in the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, well, I mean, just in relation to I mean, I mean, just in relation to taxation issues generally, I would say it's not that Ireland is opposed to any reform mm. in relation to uh, taxation and and, and and corporate taxation and how we and how we address that. But we think we think the right forum to deal with that is within the OECD. Uh, we have been very very much part of the BEPS process in yeah. the OECD to address those issues because if you're going to get a if you're going to take an equitable approach an equitable solution uh, on tax requires a global yeah. approach and you know just just the EU doing it on, it, mm. on its own isn't going to address uh, the challenges. Are you going to veto the digital services tax then that the EU uh, well, Germans we apparently want a decision in December on that. Well, we usually we, you can rely on the UK to veto yes, a well, proposal. Well, well, along with other some other member states, we have we have we have concerns about that, and we'll engage and we'll engage in the debate. Um, just to do, just a bit of comment about sort of the significance we've got, the significance of Northern Irish economy, but also the view of Irish businesses. Irish businesses must be getting quite worried. You, the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach have been doing these roadshows, haven't mm. they, about no deal preparations and. The British government has been referring people to the Irish government website if they want to know about how business in the island of Ireland will continue after Brexit. Just what's the sort of view of your government's posture that your businesses are taking? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I mean, the business. I mean, you know, obviously, business business are concerned, and they're doing they're they're, they're doing a lot of uh, contingency planning and a lot of preparedness work. We fifteen percent of Irish exports. Uh, still come to to Britain in the case of mm. food and drinks that 's thirty five percent and and so on so uh, yes they are they are they are concerned and they certainly mm. would 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 mm. would 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 mm. would would like to see a deal and would like to see a future relationship which was the closest possible relationship but I would say it 's also a two way street mm. i mean Ireland is the fifth largest export market uh, for for the United Kingdom um, something like over one hundred thousand people in Britain. Uh, are employed um, by affiliates of companies that are that that, that are that are, are that are Irish owned, um, and you know the UK exports I think considerably more to Ireland than it does to China, um, and so I mean this is very much a, a two-way street. It's not just you know so I mean in terms of business generally, it shouldn't be just you know Irish business who would, would be concerned if we ended up with any kind of uh, barriers to trade. So final question. Let's go to Rosie's. <coughs> yes. If there's another referendum, any sort of observations as a country that's much more used to holding referenda than uh, we are about how to do it right? And yesterday, Gordon Brown here 
said we need to have a national dialogue, um, what he called a People's Royal Commission, which seems a slight oxymoron to some of us, but, uh, uh, but he's former Prime Minister, so he can get away with that. Um, but he drew very strongly on the experience of Ireland with its Citizens' Assembly, uh, charting a way forward mm. before your abortion referendum. I just wonder if you finally had any helpful advice for where the UK goes next in the most diplomatic possible way, of course, Adrian. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly open to say our experience in referenda, and uh, we've had different experiences, um, but uh, even in the European ones where, we've, where we had a second referendum, that was always after a period of significant reflection uh, about what it was that was, was, what was the problem and the difficulty. Why, why was it that people you know, had, had the issue? What, what was the, the issue that basically you know, prevented them from, 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 uh, from, from voting with the, with the proposal that the, that the government was advancing? Um, uh, and then saying, having identified that, then saying, OK, well, let's, let's then go and basically go back to the European Union and negotiate the kind of assurances and so on that are required to address those concerns. And then we, then we held a second referendum when we had a package to offer to people to say, look, here were, here were the concerns. They're now being addressed in a certain way, and, uh, uh, et cetera, and uh, uh, will, you, will you think again? Um, uh, in relation to the ones more recently, the, as you say, that we had in, in relation to the, to the abortion referendum, yes, we had this very kind of, I suppose, longitudinal, deliberative process involving not just the Citizens' Assembly, but then also Parliament as well, a parliamentary committee taking the work and the report of the Citizens' Assembly, also uh, uh, having a process of dialogue and discussion around that, uh, and then formulating the question to be put to the people. And it did produce, I think, what a very surprising uh, result. Surprising in the sense is that if you had thought about this issue in advance and would say, very, very sensitive mm. issue, perhaps the people of Ireland would, mm. would, 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 would be willing to, con to contemplate mm. voting for some kind of a board, but in very, very limited mm. and defined circumstances yeah. and so on, uh, and by a very, very narrow mm. margin. And in fact, the referendum actually was not a narrow margin, it was a two-to-one uh, mm. uh, vote in favour. And I think it just shows that actually, people, when you produce the evidence yeah. to the people, when you go to its evidential base and you produce mm. the evidence and so on, uh, I, I mean, that does, you know, carry sway. Okay, now, I think that's a very good point to end on. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, our next Brexit event is next week. We have Bernard Jenkin coming to tell, him, uh, tell us what he thinks will make a successful Brexit. That is a relatively rare opportunity here. Uh, to hear somebody on the leave side putting their case. So do come and put all your questions to him. Uh, but meanwhile, could I thank Adrian O'Neill for being so open? And <laughs>